that you've been waiting for us here. Thank you for this divine appointment with you tonight. Lord, we just want to tell you that we love you. And thank you that you first loved us. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. kindly. Take your seats. My name is Alida, um, and what a great honor and privilege for me to be able to introduce my friend Shane back in South Africa. <laughs> um, we met Shane in a bit of a dark time in our congregation, and he just served us with knowledge and with strategy, and he gave us so much hope. And I think it's five years later. It's five years on, maybe six, because he skipped a year. <laughs> um, but you can join me on stage. And um, yeah, if you look around you, you can see that God has been faithful and that the hope he gave us was not for nothing. So please help me to welcome him to Centurion. Thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, it's good to be here with you. If you'd like to, if you'd like to talk to follow along in the actual Bible, Ruth chapter 4. We're going to get there in just a second. I think this is year 6 or 7, and, um, and that was just for Centurion. And 10 years ago, 11 years ago, Pastor Neville Norton rang me and asked me to come to Leavenwood and Brumaria. And, um, and so I've been journeying. I, I've, I've, preached at, I've preached at all kinds of Leavenwoods and Bronk or Sprate and uh, Mort and uh, Vanderboom and <laughs> lots of different places. And so, um, but because, because my schedule's gotten busier, 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 um, I, I was only able, last year I couldn't come to Africa at all, and this year I could only come for two weeks. But in the two weeks, I promise you, hand on heart, you guys were my first phone call, right? So I said, listen, would you guys like to do something? And they said, yes, of course. And so here we are, and I'm so glad that you came here tonight. Uh, despite the fact that the rugby's on, evidently, and yet you're here, and you're gonna you're gonna um, enjoy that. Uh, immediately after, immediately afterwards, uh, as always, our resource table is set up out there. Everything's available in four formats: CD, DVD, USB, and direct download. All right, 100% of the profit of that. Uh, as a matter of fact, just. In 12 years, I don't think I've ever taken one rand out of this country, okay? And the reason is, is because I'm American. And so you have to divide the money by 13, and that's just stupid, right? And so I've always left the money here to minister to the poor and the afflicted. And so uh, we have a, a thing in Cape Town that gets girls out of sex trafficking. Um, and we don't just do that. We get them off drugs, high school educated, job trained, and marketplace placed in order to try to break the cycle of poverty in the Cape Town Flats. Every single morning um, in the week, um, my director is at Polesmore Prison at 6 a.m. fighting um, to, to be, for us to be allowed to take people and rehabilitate them instead of leaving them in prison. And, um, and I think that's worth supporting. I think that's worth doing and changing society. And, um, so I've got something special for you tonight, though, um, uh, and tomorrow. Um, anything out there in hard copy 
is donation only, right? So you can have anything you want for any amount of, just make a donation to that of any amount and you could take what you like. Uh, For 500 Rand, you could take everything, right? You could just, anything you want in hard copy, um, you could take tonight. Um, And so we're gonna, we're gonna get, we're gonna get rid of all that stuff and restock. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna be able to to hand life changers some money uh, to help us uh, reinvest, because the government will only trust us with the amount of people that we can prove we can feed things like this, and so, um, which is a good thing. And so you can participate in that tonight um, by checking that out. Anything we're out of, we can do an automatic download. All we need is your email, and, uh, and we can get that right to you. All right, so tonight I've got something special set aside, and I've got some really special stuff tomorrow, so be sure to come back tomorrow. Um, but I've got something. I knew that the crowd tonight, I, I wanted to do something that I probably wouldn't do on a Sunday morning. Um, so I want to give you I want to give you something special. It's Saturday night. You're in church, and the spring box are probably done by now, but you chose to come anyway, which tells me that you're all Christians, okay? Everybody here is a follower of Jesus, which means I am under no pressure at all to be an evangelist, and that's a good thing because I'm not a very good evangelist. But I'm a very good teacher. And so we're going to teach. I want to, I want to fit right into your sermon series. Uh, your pastor has been doing um, a series about women in the Bible. And I'm gonna, I want to fit right into that. I want to talk to you about one of my heroes uh, who happens to be a woman who happens to be in the Bible. I think she's the bravest I think she's the bravest person in the whole Bible. To me, she's the bravest person in the whole Bible, and that is Ruth. And we're going we're gonna to read the end of the book of Ruth. So because we're going to read the end, I need to set it up because it's going to make no sense if, we don't, if I don't put some context on it, all right? So if you could bring that first slide up. So we're going to talk about the basic story up till now, all right? Because so this is the end of the book. Let me summarize the entire story that's going to lead us up till now, Okay. There was a family of four Jewish people who encountered a famine. There was not enough food to eat for them. And so to to deal with that, they took refuge in a country called Moab. Through a series of unfortunate events, every man in that situation married Moabite women and then they died, leaving all single women in a world where women were not even considered people unless they were attached to men. It would have been the worst time. If you think the world's getting worse, think again. The worst time, listen, if you're a female here tonight, let me tell you something clearly. You're living in the best time that's ever been around in the history of the world to be a woman. That is a fact. In those days, you weren't even considered a person unless you were married to a man. And this is how marriage worked back then, by the way. You had your first period, and once you had your first period, within six weeks, it was already prearranged for you to marry somebody you had never met in exchange for money, food, promise of protection, and weapons. They used their 13-year-old girls as bartering chips to buy those things. Trust me, you don't want to be a woman back then. In this situation, you got three single women. Now, unless you think that's far-fetched, it wasn't until 1919 that the United States of America thought women were smart enough to vote. That's within a hundred years. Now, they voted twice and we had the Great Depressions. I'm not sure how all that worked out. But nonetheless, nonetheless, it's within a hundred years. I'm, I'm, by the way, I'm joking. The Great Depression was started because white men in suits allowed people to buy stocks on credit. Okay, there, there it goes. Anyway, so, so you, have, you have three single women. Their names are Ruth, Orpah, and Naomi. They hear that there is now food back in in Bethlehem. So they're going to go back to Bethlehem. The Moabite women tell Naomi, we want to go with you. 
all the tension in the story hinges upon an obscure law from Deuteronomy 23 that says no Moabite will ever be accepted by God. That's a problem because Ruth's a Moabite. And by the way, David's one-fourth Moabite and Jesus is one-twenty-eighth Moabite. All right? But Deuteronomy 23 says no Moabite will ever be welcomed by God. That's a problem. Because Ruth is saying, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. So what's happening in this story is for the first time ever, somebody of a foreign tribe is wanting in on the Jewish thing and they want to not just be, they don't just want to convert races, they want to convert gods. And the people in Bethlehem are having to deal with what do we do when a Moabite wants to become part of us and not just become part of us, she wants to worship our God as well. Do we allow her to do that given the fact that Deuteronomy 23, Jewish law, said that no Moabite will ever be welcomed by God. So you could see the tension in the story. Now, the people, the people in Bethlehem are faced with this tension. What do we do with a person who wants to be a part of us, but yet the law forbids their presence? What do we do with that? And they made the best decision. They chose to fulfill Scripture instead of simply being right about it. Now, if, you, if you're the type that listens to the first four minutes of a sermon and then you phase out, listen to this right now. The church of Jesus Christ is going to enter into a season where we had better get this right. As a Christian who loves Scripture, we should fulfill Scripture instead of simply being right about it. If all they wanted to do was to be right about the Bible, they should have thrown her out. The problem is, is if they throw her out, who's never born? David. And then who's never born? Jesus. We got a real problem. But Jesus doesn't call us to simply be right about the Bible. Jesus calls us to do something more profound than that, and that is to fulfill Scripture. And to fulfill Scripture is to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And when you do unto others as you would have them do unto you, you have done something more profound than be right about something. We have now fulfilled it. And that is the higher thing. And so what we learn in this story is a few things. One, that as a Christian who loves Scripture, we should fulfill it and not just be right about it. Two, we also, loves that God, we also learn that God loves people more than the rules. The rules say that she was not welcome. But what we find in this story is that God evidently loves people more than the rules. And if you're the type, if you're here tonight and you don't really understand Jesus and what he was all about, let me, let me summarize Jesus in one statement. Jesus' message in one statement was that no matter what you've done or where you are or who you are, God loves you more than whatever the rules say you deserve. Whatever the rules say you deserve, God loves you more than that. Yes, you've committed adultery and the rules say we should stone you, but we're not going to stone you because God loves you more than the rules. And if we don't get anything else right from this message, let's get this right. That as a church of Jesus Christ and Centurion, we should fulfill Scripture instead of simply being right about it. And we should scream at the top of our lungs anything that God loves you more than the rules. Be very wary of people who only quote the Scriptures that say what we deserve and leave off the end of the story that says God does not treat people how they deserve. God affirms people for their worth, not what they deserve because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Let's get to the end of the story and quit quoting only part of it, all right? So as a Christian, we should fulfill Scripture and not just be right about it. We should learn that God loves people more than the rules. Next slide. Let's say it this way. What we also learn in this story is that your behavior determines your reputation, but not your redemption. 
in this story, Ruth's redemption was completely dependent upon the kindness of a man named Boaz. But her reputation was determined by her behavior. Evidently, she got into Bethlehem and Naomi tells her, listen, you don't need to give these people any more reason to want to kill you. You need to work hard. You need to have integrity. And that's what she did. She worked hard. She had integrity. She didn't take advantage of people's generosity. She became a model citizen and was very, very, very popular. And, and you don't ever want to be a person who confuses behavior and reputation with redemption and forgiveness. Or you can run the risk of becoming a person who's completely forgiven by God, but your word and your name means nothing to our fellow man. So we learn that from the book of Ruth as well. Now, we get to a part in the story, this is why I love, I, if you haven't figured this out, I think the Bible is awesome. I've given my life to studying it, I've given my life to communicating it in entertaining ways. I love it. And part of the reason I love the Bible is the Bible tells the whole story. It tells the successes, it tells the failures. It tells the things you'd be proud about, it tells the things that you wouldn't be so proud about. There, it tells the whole story. So there's this, you get to this part in the book of Ruth where Naomi says to Ruth, Ruth, keep your eye on the price, sweetie. You got to get a husband. Because without a husband, you're nobody. So we got to get you a man. And evidently, there was a guy named Boaz. And Naomi essentially says this. Hey, Ruth, see that guy over there? Yep, his name's Boaz. Yep, let me tell you about him. First, he's single. Check. Second, he's rich. Check, check. Third, he's kind. Check, check, check. Single, rich, kind. What else could you possibly want? Ruth says, yes. She says, so in Israel, how do women get men's attention? Evidently, the language of attraction is similar all over the world for all time. Here's what she says. This is a direct quote from the Bible. She waited until the middle of the night when his heart was merry from too much drinking. That's called drunk. She crawled under the covers with him. She lifted the corner of his garment and uncovered his feet. Kinky. Now, all of this is what you're thinking. <laughs> See, the Jews were not unlike us. Nobody speaks of sexuality in purely literal terms, unless you're Sheldon Cooper, right? <laughs> Nobody would say to their spouse, Excuse me, would you like to retire to the bedroom and engage in intercourse? If that is your pickup line, choose a new one, right? We have metaphors for these things. So, so did the Jews, and both metaphors are being used. But the first one is a foot. In, in most cases, a foot is a, a, a foot. It, it's literally a foot. And if the context is that, leave it a foot. But in ancient, ancient Hebrew, there, there was only three words. There was the center of your being your gut, and then there was the upper and the under. And the under could be anything under, right? And so, I, 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 so a foot could be a foot, 
or it could be a metaphor. Yeah. So I'll, I'll give you an example. Okay. I'll give you an example. From, I'll give you an example from the Bible, but it's I don't, so. So it says that Saul went into the cave, and in English, I don't know what it says in Afrikaans, but in English it says to use the toilet or to relieve himself. Right. In Hebrew it says he went into the cave and uncovered his feet. All right. Or in Song of Solomon, it says the man came back from a long trip and he asked his wife, would you like to make love? And she says, make love. Oh, this is a direct quote. Oh, my feet are clean. Must I dirty them again? Right. So obviously, um, so there's a foot and then there's a foot. Now, now listen, don't take that too far. All right. There, there's a very common Middle Eastern custom called a foot washing. Um, that's a foot. Like, like Jesus washed his disciples' feet. Like, I mean, all right, so, God, I hate this part of being a rabbi. Oh, God, this part sucks. So, so you got that. The other metaphor is the canape. So a canape is, a, um, is the corner of a garment. The, the, the corner of one's garment is a canape in Hebrew. Think canopy. So in, in speaking literally, oh, nice canape would be nice shirt. Um, or, or the lady grabbed the corner, the canape of Jesus' garment, right? So when, it, when spoken of literally, it's a canape. But a common metaphor in Hebrew for it was a very clean way to ask to make love would be to lift the canape. So when it says, when it says she crawled under the covers, lifted his canape, and uncovered his feet, this is all the, let me do it in a way you might remember. Um, sometimes canape is canape. Sometimes it's canape, right? So you've got this, all right? Now, here's where you're in luck. Here's where you're in luck. This only works in Afrikaans, right? I can't do this anywhere in English because evidently Afrikaans as a culture and a language shares some root words in Hebrew because it's the same exact euphemism in Afrikaans. It, Okay, in Afrikaans, don't you say sukiya kanipi? Right? Right? So, is that a thing? Right? Sukiya kanipi? Kanipi? Sukiya kanipi? Right? So, that's the same metaphor in Hebrew. So, that's what's going on here, right? Now, I want to be very clear about this. My Afrikaans is good. I want to be very clear about this. Ruth is not asking him to marry her. She's telling him he has to. Here's why. In Deuteronomy 25, it says that if a woman is married to a Jew, that's Ruth, if the man dies, the nearest relative must marry her. Naomi, it was called the kinsman redeemer law if you're into the technicality of it. Naomi tells her, Boaz is the nearest redeemer, go tell him he must redeem you. And she does. She goes under the covers, lifts the canopy of his garment, uncovers his feet, and she says, the law says you must redeem me. So redeem me. Here's the problem. Boaz knows the whole law. She only knew part of it. First of all, turns out Boaz is not the closest redeemer. There's another guy. That's first. Second, Deuteronomy 25 says, for the kinsman redeemer law to be invoked, it has to be done in the middle of the day at the town gate in front of 10 witnesses. She's trying to do this in the middle of the night in private. So Boaz says, listen, 
if you'll let me paraphrase, I love you and I want this to be legal. Because I want this to be legal, I need you to sneak out of here. And tomorrow, I'll set up a meeting at the town gate with 10 witnesses so that this can be legal. Because if you get caught doing it this way, you're going to die. And I don't want you to die. I love you. So if you, could, if you could trust me on this, just sneak out of here so you don't die. And then tomorrow, I'll handle this in a legal way. So um, one day when you get to heaven and you see a guy walking around with the largest self-control medal ever. That's Boaz, all right? Now, now you're up to date. Boaz is setting this up to make this legal, okay? So let's look at the scripture. This is Ruth chapter four. That went a little longer than I thought because you were laughing harder than I thought. But you don't mind. Here we go. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the redeemer who Boaz spoke of came by. So evidently there's this other guy that he has to get permission and they never name him. I want you, if you're a note taker, note that. They never name him. They just call him the redeemer. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend. Now you sit down here. And he did. He turned and sat, sat down. And then he took 10 men of elders and they sat down as well. So you've got everything you need. You've got 10 witnesses, the town gate, middle of the day. All right. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who had come back from the country of Moab, is selling a parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of these sitting here and in the presence of my people. And he, he said, if you'll redeem it, then do so. But if you will not, tell me that I can do it. For there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he says, I will redeem it. Now, now I want to, let's, let's make sure we understand this. Everything's legal. There's another relative. He says, there's a piece of land that rightfully belongs to you. Would you like it? He says, land, I love land. Sure. Now, once he says that, Boaz tells the whole story. Watch what happens. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you acquire Ruth the Moabite the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and the inheritance. Let me explain that simply. You like land? Yes. Well, you can have the land, but if you take the land, it's attached to a woman. Oh, and it's not, just, it's not a Jewish woman, it's a Moabite woman. You know those cursed people. Oh, and by the way, she's a widow. Oh, and by the way, she doesn't have children yet. So Deuteronomy 25 says, if you take the land, you got to take her, and you have to have children with her, and you have to consider those children, you have to consider them full Jews with the right inheritance that your other children share. You have to share it equally between them. That's the whole deal. Now watch how fast he backs up. He backs up fast. Then the Redeemer said, well, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. In other words, if I let a cursed woman in here, or if I have to divide the inheritance anymore, no, the actual Hebrew there, lest I impair my own inheritance, is she's a bad investment. She's not worth the risk. She's too risky. She's not worth the risk. This is a bad investment for my business. You take the right of redemption for yourself because I can't do it. Now watch what happens. Now this was the custom in the former time in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. Okay? This is, by the way, this is how you know the book of Ruth was written way, 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 way later. It's because the current author is having to explain to a current audience what something used to be like, right? So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he immediately drew off his sandal. So he says, you don't want it? Nope. Okay. Right? You don't know how much this woman loves canape. You don't understand. This is going to be great, right? <laughs> this is going to be awesome, right? Keep going. So, so, yeah. So a couple of observations about this, 
All right? One, this is an ancient story that's behaving like one. A woman is being discussed as property. That should sicken us, okay? But that's just how it was back then. The kinsman redeemer law was the most gracious law in the whole world at the time it was written. The redeemer in this story is happy to take the land, but not Ruth. He calls her a bad investment. So you have Boaz and you have the rightful relative. They just call him the redeemer. Um, and, and he says she's not worth the risk. Now, my hand on heart, this sounds like I'm making this up. I promise you, if you go look it up in Hebrew, this is the truth. The guy they just call the Redeemer five times, if you go look it up in Hebrew, his name is Poloni Al Maloney. <laughs> Hand on heart. Who would do that to a kid? That's how you spell it right there in number three. The Redeemer's name is Poloni Al Maloney. Who would, oh, oh, he's beautiful. Let's name him Poloni Al Maloney. That's his name. So they just call him the Redeemer. Now, this got me interested. So I went to my historical researchers and I said, I want to know who Poloni Al Maloney is. I want you to go find it. I want to find references. I want to be able to explain what's the story underneath the story of Poloni Al Maloney. And do you know what? There is not one reference in the Bible. There's not one reference in Jewish history. There's not one reference anywhere to Poloni Al Maloney anywhere. There is one vague reference to his uncle. Let me show you his uncle's name. His uncle's name is, next slide, Patty O. Maloney. Who, of course, is, next slide, a drunk Irishman who abuses people at parties. Now, next slide. Okay. Pol uh, I made that part up. That's, that was all a joke. All right. Poloni Al Maloney literally in Hebrew means so-and-so. Uh, John Doe, that guy over there. To this day in Israel, a Poloni Al Maloney is an unidentified body. It's a nameless person, a so-and-so, a thigamabopsit. Uh, I don't know what the Afrikaans would be. A a, a, uh, in, in America, it would, be, it would be come identify the John Doe. Um, it, it's a so-and-so. So in this story, Poloni Al Maloney says that Ruth is a bad investment. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever had somebody that's not even worth naming try to make you feel worse about yourself? Let, let, let's, let's talk about it a few different ways. Have we ever been told by someone not important enough to name that you're not worth it? Or, or, or let's say it this way. And this has enormous ramifications for what it means to build a church. Have we ever been guilty of gauging relationships based on economics alone? Have we ever decided who's in and who's out of our social circle based solely on what they can bring to the table? Because what's happening in this story is the Poloni Al Maloney deems that Ruth is not bringing enough money to the table, so he says she's not worth the risk. And anytime we do that, we're becoming the Poloni Al Maloney. Or, or maybe another application for the church is this. Next slide. I mean, the, back to this slide. When, when, uh, ba back up one for me, please. Have we, can we, can you go, yeah. Have we ever shunned someone because of social stigma around them? Is there a person or a group of people who would feel less than welcome here in terms of belonging because of some social stigma about them? 
In this story, Ruth's a Moabite, and that's the social stigma. But maybe that has different applications today. Maybe we could be more specific. Next slide. So the bank tells you that you're too big of a risk, you don't qualify. You go into F&B Bank, and you put your whole life on the line in front of someone that you wouldn't even know their name had they not have a name tag on. And they look at you and say, you're not worth the risk. We will not be giving you that loan. That is Poloni, Al Maloney. Or maybe next slide. Maybe, that, maybe you go to a networking event and you're embarrassed by your name tag. So you go there, you're like, Dr. Jane, businessman Joe, lawyer Jim, and you're like, oh, no. And a group of people who you don't even know their name, had they not had a name tag on, is making you feel worse about yourself. Or when asked, what do you do, you recoil. Or, or next slide, you're targeted at the office by bullies who are simply envious of your promotion. That's Poloni, Al Maloney. Or, or, or we behave in some destructive way because of some deep desire to please our father. Yet no one around even knows his name. That's Poloni, Al Maloney. What's happening in this story is that Ruth is struggling with whether or not they're going to let her belong to their world because of something about her. Which leads me to this. This story is a story about shame. Shame is one of those things that we know is bad. We would say, don't feel ashamed here. There's no shame at Levendavud, except for my Afrikaans accent. There's no shame here. I'm sure it's been said from here, because I know your pastors well, and I would call them my friends. We're low-maintenance friends, because we have to be low-maintenance friends, because I travel the world. But nonetheless, we're friends. And because I know them, I know that it would be said here something like this. Regardless of who you are, where you've come from, you are never out of the reach of the love of Jesus. There is no fear of not belonging here. There's no fear of shame here. It's that kind of thing. Shame's one of those things that we know is bad, but we quickly run out of language for it. Until now. Because of Brene Brown and the great researchers at the University of Washington, I think we have a great working definition of shame. If you could bring that slide back up now. Shame is the manifestation of the fear of not belonging. That's what shame is. Shame is when you're afraid of a new group of people not allowing you to belong to their world. And this is why I'm doing this message on Saturday night. Because I know I'm talking to the key people here. And for this church to be the kind of church it can be in this community, it's the responsibility of the people in this room to make sure that we remove the fear of not belonging from the outside world. We have to clearly communicate there is no fear of not belonging in our world. Because, listen, if you can't tell the difference between accepting a person and affirming everything they do, you're nine years old, right? As adults, we should be able to accept any person, regardless of where they are, without feeling like accepting them means we affirm everything they do. I do not affirm everything you eat, but I love you. I don't affirm everything you drink, but I love you. I don't affirm how most of us drive, but I love you. It, it's the idea that you can belong here before you're transformed. Because here's what we believe at Levendavud. 
We believe that the only transformative power in the entire universe is the work of the Holy Spirit of the risen Christ. And that it is not our job to be the agent of conviction and change. It is our job to be the agent of love and acceptance so that the Spirit of the risen Christ can do His work in everybody's heart. And that is the work of transformation. And to do that, we have to remove any fear of not belonging, which is removing shame. Let's, let me put some more specific language around that because I think shame is something we need to understand. Shame is felt when close belonging is threatened because of something about us. This is why when you meet a new group of people, right, and you don't care whether you belong to their world, you just let it all hang out, right? But when you meet a new group of people and you actually want to belong to their world, you, you, you take the temperature of the room and you only present the side of yourself that would be acceptable. That's, that's called smart. That's called social IQ. That, that's what we do. So shame is, if I meet a new group of people, so let's, let, me, let me talk to you as a pastor talking to leaders of a church, okay? Tomorrow, 50 people are going to visit here for the first time. And when they walk in, they're going to wonder, if these people knew this about me, would they still let me belong here? And it is our job to make sure that they know they can belong regardless of anything about them. Even if they're an atheist. I don't think there's such a thing as an African atheist, but nonetheless, even if they're an atheist, they should be allowed to belong here while the Holy Spirit of Jesus does whatever he's going to do in their life, right? So it would go like this. What if they found out blank about me? Could I still belong? Like, what if they found out I was a homosexual? Would they let me belong to their world? Or what if they found out I was divorced? Or from a broken home? Or what if they found out my last name was different than my mother's? Or what if they found out I was a convicted criminal? And I did my time and I loved the Lord. Would they, would they let me belong? Or what if they found out I was a former prostitute? What if they found out I was a current prostitute? What if they found out I was an addict? What if they found out I had a sex change 10 years ago? But four years ago, I had an encounter with the risen Christ and it changed my life. And now I'm just looking for a place to belong. Would they let me? What if they found out what I actually ate and drank? What if that? Let me, let me give you some specifics around this. This is true. This is true of any person who's coming in here looking for a new place to relate. They're wondering if they can belong if you knew these things about them. Let's even put some more language on it. Let's say this is true of, um, of money. Hey, have you ever, have you ever been hanging out with a group of people and they accepted you? And then you worked out everybody had money? And then you worked out that they thought you had money? And you don't? And then you wonder, if they found out that I'm actually not as rich as they think I am, would they still let me belong to their world? That's shame. That's a fear of not belonging to their world because of social economic status. This is, what, this is true of body image. This is why the people who need to go to the gym the most tend not to go, right? Here's what the research shows. I know this is, this is not going to be any news to females, but here's what the research shows. That women do not like to be gawked at by men at the gym, right? So they had, a, they, you could go off that slide. I'm not quite there yet. So, so you could, so, so, so this is why they had, a, they had a business idea for all female gyms. And it went off. All male gyms, not a good idea, okay? 
What they showed too was that women don't like to be compared to the really fit woman next to her on the treadmill, right? That's called shame. Shame is my body looks a certain way, so I'm not belonging to this world, right? This is true of attraction, okay? So I'm a man. Um, let me tell you how attraction works to men, okay? If a, if a man finds you very attractive, let me confess something. They're terrified of you, okay? Until they know you're going to let them belong to your world, you're not seeing the real them. You're seeing the them that they want you to see so that you'll remove the fear of not belonging. Let me explain. Here's what, here's what it looks like, right? So let's say you're hanging out with a group of people. And let's say there's a woman, and let's say for the sake of example, that that woman is ten times prettier than you are good looking, okay? And so you look across the room at her, and you're thinking, shoot, she is good looking, right? But you know she's out of your league. But then one thing leads to another, and you find chemistry with her. So when you're around, you find it easy to speak to her. Jokes come to your head. She laughs at your jokes. There's good conversations. And you're thinking, ooh, man, is this going somewhere? And then one thing leads to another, and you end up at this group, and you end up at dinner at a round table. And she chooses to sit by you. And you're thinking, shoot, was that on purpose? And then underneath the table, her leg rubs yours. And I'm not talking about like this. I'm talking about like this. And you're thinking, was that on purpose? Shoo. And then one thing leads to another. And you end up in a conversation with her. And you're like, hey, what's up? What'd you get up to today? And she's like, well, I got up at 4.15 to make it to my 4.30 CrossFit class so I could be done by 5.30 so I could make it to the hot yoga class that I teach. And you're like, woo. And then one thing leads to another. And you end up on a date. You get a first date with this girl. Now, let me illustrate this. If you're in this room and you're a female and you're married, okay? I want you to think about this. Every married woman in this room remembers their first date with their husband. Now, the men don't remember that, okay? And it's not because we don't love you. It's just we don't remember all that crap. That's your thing. Now, but you ladies, you ladies, okay? Think back to your first date with your husband. Think back. Knowing what you know now about him. Did he dress the way he actually wanted to? No. Why? Shame. He was afraid of not belonging to your world. Did he smell the way he smells today? No. Why? Shame. He was afraid of not belonging to your world. Did he order what he actually wanted to order? No way. Why? Shame. He was afraid of not belonging to your world. Did he do the things in the car after the first date after the meal that he does in the car now after the meal? No. Why? Shame. He's afraid of not belonging to your world. That's how shame works. So, you get a first date with this girl. 
And she's the one that gets up at 4.30 to go to CrossFit, you know. And you're like, shoot, here she comes. She's made of pure muscle and prettiness. And I'm made of pudding and pork. And she comes to the table. And you're like, I'll order a half a grilled chicken breast on one of those like skewer things with like bell peppers in the middle of it with a half a order of rice pilaf and some broccoli. Why would you order that? Shame. You're afraid of not belonging to your world. Well, one thing leads to another I, and, and you end up marrying this girl. And five years later, for your five-year anniversary, you go back to that same restaurant because she reminds you that's where you went on your first date. And you're there. Are you going to order the same food? No chance. You're like, I'll have 20 fried chicken wings, some french fries, and a beer. And she's like, God, you're disgusting. Have you no shame? And he's like, nope, you married me. You removed all fear of not belonging. And you are stuck with all of this for the rest of your life. That's right. That's what happens when you remove shame. When you remove shame, you actually get to the real person so that life transformation can happen. That's what happens. And this is what Brene Brown's research shows. Let me show you this. Next slide. Research shows that there's only one variable that separates people who report having a profound sense of love and belonging and people who report that they don't. And the variable is not money. It's not education. It's not job. It's not location. It's not race. It's not any of that. The only variable was the people who report having a sense of love and belonging are people who felt like they were worth it. It's the people who felt like they were worth it. And if you want to know what the gospel is in a nutshell, the gospel in a nutshell is this. While you were still hostile to God, God acted first to say you are worth it. In this story, the unnamed redeemer says she's not worth the risk. But the guy we're still talking about today was the guy who said, you are risky as anything, but you are worth it. And that's the gospel message in a nutshell. The gospel message in a nutshell was a God that went, man, you guys are risky, but you are worth the risk. And if God says you're worth it, can part of repentance and believing the gospel is not just accepting Christ to go to heaven. It's also believing what he says about us and believing what he says about us. And by the way, and them, he says they're worth it too, but they're hostile to God. Yes. So were you one day, but when you were hostile to God, God moved first to save your life and he's still moving to save theirs. That is the gospel. N next slide. So Boaz walks up to the city gate and tells people what to do, and they do it. He's a man of high influence. He's Torah observant even to greater generosity. He's following the rules to make this thing legal. Boaz not only lets her endure his household and takes care of her, he marries her and makes an oath to have kids with her. And by the way, his children become the great-grandparents of David, who's the 14-time great-grandparent of Jesus Christ. This thing ends beautifully. Which leads me to this question. Why did someone hundreds of years later write this story down? What about this story did someone go, we need to write that down? That story needs to be told. And obviously part of it is to explain where David came from. But when Jewish people wrote down ancient stories, they were trying to tell us something about God. And the question is, is what does this story teach us about God? And I love the way the rabbis teach it. 
So I'm not going to change it because I think it's beautiful. And here's what the rabbis say. Next slide. The rabbis say that this story reveals that God is a God of chesed. C-H-E-S-E-D. In Hebrew, a C-H is a K sound. Um, I realize in English that says cheesed. So it's not che cheesed. God is a cheese. No, no. It's, it's chesed. Chesed is loving kindness. Unmerited kindness. It's generosity. In the root word chesed, it's a swan plucking feathers off of itself to great pain in order to make a bed for its young. Chesed is anytime you're willing to experience pain yourself so someone else can be comfortable. That's chesed. Chesed, chesed is when somebody walks in these doors and because of something about them, you feel a little uncomfortable, but you humble yourself so that they can belong so the Spirit of Christ can change their life. That's chesed. Chesed is when you act in a way. Chesed is when you feed people who can do nothing in return. I think in the next few weeks, you guys, traditionally, unless you've changed this, and boy, it's too late if you have. Um, traditionally, you guys do winter, uh, Christmas and winter here. Um, and, and, the, and the whole point of that, because one of the reasons I always come to Levin of Wood, in, in, as long as they'll have me, is because I connected with the heart of Levin of Wood, with specifically Funanani, and, um, and, and what you guys do for the poor and the afflicted. Cassette is that. Cassette is bringing Christmas or care or food to people who can do nothing in return, but you don't do it because they deserve it. You do it because you affirm their worth. That's chesed. Chesed is when you act in a way that affirms someone's worth. If you want to know what love is, here it is in a sentence. Love is the ratio to which you treat someone as they are worth and never as they deserve. That, that's what Jesus said God's like. Jesus said, if you want to know what God's like, God, look at flowers and birds. They do nothing to deserve it, but God feeds them and clothes them because they're worth it to him. Here's the point. If we're going to be a church of God, then we must be a church of chesed because God is a God of chesed. And what that means is that we have to be willing to humble ourselves and experience a little bit of pain ourselves, so that someone else can know they belong to remove the shame, to remove the fear of not belonging requires a community of people who humble themselves and are willing to experience a little bit of pain so somebody else can be comfortable and belong so God can change their life. Now, great sermons are not meant to be agreed with. Like, if, if the only way you gauge a sermon is whether you agree with it or disagree with it, that is boring and ridiculous. If you come up to me tonight and go, I love that because I agree with you, you miss the point. Or if you say, I hated that, I disagree with you, you also miss the point. Great sermons are not meant to be agreed with or disagreed with. Great sermons are meant to be wrestled with. They're meant to be life-changing things. They're meant to be events. They're meant to be things that we still talk about on Thursday over coffee going, what does this mean for my life? That. If a, if a sermon can be evaluated the amount of time it took to deliver it, it wasn't a good sermon or you weren't a good audience. One of the two. Okay? And so, so the best way to wrestle is with questions. So let, let's talk about this for a second. Next slide. Because God says you're worth it, can you believe that you're worthy of love and belonging? That's the basic gospel message. Not just to be forgiven, but to know you're worth it. I, I think another thing we need to wrestle with is, who is Poloni Almaloni to you and to me? Who is the nameless person making us feel worse about ourselves? Whose voice needs to get quieter in our life so that we can agree with the one who's willing to be named and says we're worth it? Let's say it this way. 
Is there anybody we're being Poloni El Maloney to? Is there, any, is there any group of people or person that we are being the nameless person? We're being the one that says, you don't work, you don't, you're not worth it. You don't belong here. You can't be here because there's something about you. Maybe we could say it this way. Next slide. Jesus did not die simply to forgive us, but to challenge the so-and-sos along the way, the Poloni Almalonis, to scream that you're worth loving. How can we reflect that to someone on the outside this week? How can we reflect that? How can we, hey, I know, I know what you did. Hey, I know, I know you went through that divorce. I know, I know you're embarrassed by it. I know, but you belong here. I know you did something that, hey, hey, I know, but you belong here. I know you struggle with a little bit of alcohol. I get that, I get that. And you know what? I don't affirm that, but I can accept you and allow you to be changed by God. Please know that you belong here. The entire gospel message is that while we were hostile to God, God reached out to us. How can we show that cassette to people on the outside? Because the cure for shame is not prayer. The cure for shame is not fighting demons. The cure for shame is a group of people being kind, is a group of people saying, we serve a God of cassette, so we will be a people of Kassed. Let me pray for you. Lord, we love you. We honor you. We proclaim your king. There's none like you. Lord, we want to not only embrace the cross that saves us, but also embrace the cross that commands us to be people of Kassed, people who are willing to humble ourselves so that other people can be in comfort and know they belong. Lord, would you remove shame? Would you let us know deep on the inside that we're worth it? Lord, I pray that this place would be a, a dwelling place for your name, the compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, God. May we be a church of God by being a church of Kassed. Amen.